you're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by CECC, the Canada-Eurasia Chamber of Commerce. We are a nonprofit focusing on trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of CECC and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights related to the region. today by Peter McCann, a graduate of Algonquin College and the Ivy MBA program. Peter established a consulting firm in 1989 to assist companies and not-for-profit organizations who are underperforming as per the expectations of their executives, shareholders, lenders, and stakeholders. He has worked in seven Canadian provinces and with four Canadian First Nations, has consulted in two U.S. states, in Finland, Germany, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan, has written two business books, Strategy and Business Planning of Privately Held Companies and Turnarounds, Brains, Guts, and Stamina. Peter has been a speaker and a lecturer in Canada, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, China, and Kyrgyzstan. And he is now serving as advisor to the rector of the Tashkent Chemical Technologies Institute. Hello, Peter. Hello, and it's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. We're looking for, for bright personalities in uh, Eurasia, and, and uh, you came on our radar screen. What do you do as advisor to the rector of the Tashkent Chemical Technologies Institute? Enlighten us a little bit. I'm not sure that there's a typical day, but broadly, what I'm trying to do is help the institute and the rector do a radical transformation from being a standard uh, post-Soviet era state university into a dynamic international uh, and competitive university. So that's that's the focus. That's the purpose of what we're doing everything now. So that, that fits in with the theme of your book, Turnarounds, right? The similarities are so striking. And if, if you rethink a, a reposition in your mind, a university, and think of it as another industrial sector serving uh, a set of, of customers with the constraints of uh, financial resources, uh, technology, and so on, then the principles that would be applied to uh, a transformation in an industrial firm applies also in a university. Now, give us uh, just an example, one or two. I'm supposed to be asking you about your childhood at this point, but this is too interesting, so, so I apologize. Tell us just one or two things. What are you doing that the university hasn't done in the past? What are you advising them to do? How are things changing under your management, well, management advisorship, I, I would say? Okay, here's, I, I think, a, a, a great example. Starting in about March, I uh, led a, a, a one-man committee that started the process and the university had been comparing itself to anybody that it could connect with, oftentimes not on a global 2000 ranking of universities. So with the rector's full support and consent, we started a program where I said to every department head and every dean, you must find not should find, you must find two programs that are similar to yours 
like, as, as an example, uh, mechanical engineering for the oil and gas industry. Find two programs that are mechanical engineering for oil and gas in global top 300 universities. Don't bring me an example from a university that's not even listed or a university that's uh, marked 1,647. It must be in the top 300. And there was kicking and screaming, but every department was forced to select two from top three global top 300 universities. And then they had to put on a spreadsheet all the details about their program and about comparable A and comparable B. And we wanted to see how much time was being devoted to, for instance, fundamental physics, uh, chemistry, engineering, math, one and two, what was the content of the math, uh, how much time in labs, how much time in practicum, and compare all of that and say, what can we do better here to make us modeled on these two programs from global top 300 universities? And we have 28 bachelor degrees and 26 out of the 28 converted, made very substantial conversions so that we have not quite a common curriculum across the 26 bachelor programs, uh, but almost about 70, 75% commonality across 26 bachelor programs. So you're putting in a core a core educational uh, content and then uh, you know a specialization would be 25% uh, the, the additional 25%. Yes, and and the specialization between I don't know uh, mechanical engineering for the oil and gas industry versus uh, something in food technology comes in years 3 and 4. But we want every graduate to have fundamental science, chemistry, physics, mathematics, and to be strong because we want to be known as strong in the fundamentals. Good for you. Good for you. And let's face it, the, the, the fundamentals will not change until another Einstein or Max Planck comes around, and they only come around once every hundred years. It's going to be the details of the application to oil and gas versus food technology that changes. And so that's in years three and four. And what about the two programs that uh, did not fully cooperate and did not fully? Yes, you said 26 out of 28, right? Yes. And so there was two that did not. And so they will experience a, a transformation shortly. <laughs> Keep watching this space, huh? That that sounds ominous, Peter. <laughs> well, it's it's part of my loving, gentle side coming out. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. So let's uh, skip back now. To where, I'll start where I was supposed to start. Guys, uh, I really didn't understand what you did, even after our preliminary talk. And that's my weakness. You know, I should have gotten more. more I, I think I do have a much better understanding of what you do now. Tell me about uh, yourself, your education. You know, how is it that a person... Uh, where did you, first of all, where were you born? What part of Canada? Uh, I was born and raised in a little town called Quill, Quebec, which is in the Ottawa Valley, about across from our prior Ontario, maybe 35, 40 miles, I'm showing my age, 50 kilometers northwest of Ottawa on the banks of the Ottawa River. I grew up 
swimming in the Ottawa River during the summer where a ferry, and it still operates, a ferry crosses the Ottawa River bringing cars back and forth because there's no bridge uh, nearby. Oh, now you're dating yourself. No, no, the, the ferry still operates. Oh, okay, okay, there we go. And it's operated there for, gee, I think about 95 years now. Your uh, comment reminded me about uh, an American couple, friends of mine, that 10 years ago were in Canada when she began to give birth. And she said, how far to the hospital? And his answer was, I can't tell. Everything's in kilometers. But just go the speed limit, dear. You'll be okay. Exactly. Okay, so you're in the Ottawa Valley. Where did you go to school then? Algonquin College. My, my elementary and high school was all in one building. And there was 100 kids in our high school. And there was 11 kids in our graduating class. This was a small community, including the, the surrounding farmland. So, yes, I went to uh, Algonquin College for one year, dropped out, and after a couple of years went back and finished the final two years of a three-year diploma. It was called a diploma course then, a three-year diploma course in business administration. And uh, when I graduated then, I... I went to, I don't know if you recall, the Industrial Development Bank, which became, is now known as BDC, Business Development Canada. And I, you know, I was young, I don't know, 22, 23, and, and maybe a little cocky. And, and so at that time, BDC or Industrial Development Bank was a subsidiary of the Bank of Canada. So I go in and I'm talking with the, uh, the manager and uh, he says, well, we only hire university graduates. We don't hire community college graduates. And being like a good 22-year-old, I said, well, you've never hired a community college graduate? He said, no, never. And I said, well, I guess you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Sassy. <laughs> and he looked at me uh, kind of stunned. And I found out later that it was a natural state for him. But anyway, um, he... Uh, he said, well, I'll talk with the regional office in Toronto. And they sent me to, to Toronto for an interview. And the same thing happened again, as, as if we were both reading the same script of a play. And finally, the guy in Toronto said, okay, you're an experiment. And so I became an experiment and I was there for two years and then went to Roynat. And uh, Roynat was a great experience. I was there for 10 years. Now, they never regretted hiring you? We never, how did that turn out? Well, I left before they fired me, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I was a little sassy and a little headstrong for uh, a subsidiary of the Bank of Canada. We see that, yes. <laughs> you see that. And you, you can't imagine that in the last close to 50 years, I mellowed considerably. Well, and you went on then to rectify that deficiency, if you can call I wouldn't call a, a, a degree from Algonquin College a deficiency, but evidently they thought so. Yes. And you went on to get an MBA. Yes. And uh, I was very fortunate. I, I applied to, I don't know, seven or eight universities. And the Ivy School of Business at Western was the only Canadian MBA program that would accept me because I didn't have a bachelor's degree. Aha, uh -huh, interesting. But Ivy had uh, a small percentage, maybe maybe 3% or so of their incoming class 
were not what they called non-degree applicants. And I think that tra traced back to the demobilization after the Second World War, where they started allowing ser servicemen with, with good experience into master's programs. So Ivy continued that tradition. And so in the, the mid 80s, uh, they were still open to the idea of a small number of non-degree applicants. Well, we're glad you made it there. We're glad you got your MBA. And I want to fast forward to, to Central Asia, but let's, let's have one more transition. You know, what is it that made you into a consultant? And when was it that you decided you're not going to work for somebody? You're going to uh, teach people about turnarounds. You know, how did that, how did you develop that specialty in, in, your, in your brain? I think it's because of my rotten personality. I don't like working for big organizations. I'm not an organization person. <laughs> I can work in large organizations if, if I'm at the top of it, but to be a functionary, I just rebelled against uh, structures that didn't seem to make sense. Too sassy. Yeah, it's a personality defect um, <laughs> for, for many roles. A society and an organization needs variety. And uh, my personality, I, I think, the world needs that personality, but, but maybe in small doses. <laughs> well, you're providing a small dose in Central Asia. Um, you know, I, I know you could talk probably for, for another 20 minutes on some of the assignments uh, that where you first realized you had these talents, but let's fast forward to Central Asia. What is it that brought you to Central Asia? And I think it was Kyrgyzstan first, was it not? No. Uh, the first time I went to Central Asia, <clears throat> excuse me, was December 1998 to Ust-Kamenogorsk, Kazakhstan. Okay. And the story there was that I was sitting in my little home office in Hamilton, Ontario, and I received a call from the so-called little brother at uh, from the MBA program at Ivy. Ivy would match uh, people in the second year with people in the first year. So when I was in my second year, I was... Uh, matched with a fellow by the name of Rob Alloway. And I don't know, 10 years after I graduated, Rob calls me and says, I'm active in a Christian uh, missionary type group, and they've established a business college in, in Uskam and Agoras. They really need somebody to teach strategy. Would you go? And I thought for five to 10 seconds and said, sure, uh, I may have to think of how I'm going to sell this idea to my wife, but yes. And uh, I should say my wife at the time. And I said, but but I'm not religious, so I'm very secular. And Rob said, fine, we're desperate, we'll take you. And so two months later, I was on a plane to uh, to uh, Almaty and then to Uskamenogorsk. In 1998. And did you never return then? Have you been in Central Asia since 1998? Well, 1998, I went for three weeks and then went back to Canada to do my regular job, uh, which is management consulting. And then the next year and the year after, I went back again for three weeks to Uskamenogorsk. And after doing that for three Decembers in a row, I went to uh, Baku, Azerbaijan for... December and then the next December. And uh, then the following December, I went to St. Petersburg, Russia. And I went there twice. 
And then I just got so busy in Canada and uh, personal affairs, business, whatever, that I just didn't take any time off. So it sounds like you visited the region every December. Yes. Uh, other people would, would uh, choose the, the, the most pleasant of times, which really I think here would be, oh, April, May, June, or September, October, November. December was quiet for the management consulting uh, business in Canada, so that was a good time to go. So what is it that brought you over permanently? Because you did eventually, you know, put down roots and, and start living in Central Asia. How, what brought you over permanently? Okay, in the spring of 2016, I was sitting in my, my home office and uh, still in Hamilton. The management consulting niche that I was in, small, medium-sized businesses, companies in trouble, banks being a key referral source, essential for me. All of that had changed in the aftermath of the American financial crisis because it changed the dynamics of how banks viewed problem loans. And so it was much different. I wasn't having fun and I wasn't making money. And I want to do one of the two. Yeah, either one would be fine. <laughs> well, ideally, it would be both of them. That's what I would really like. Most of my life, I've been making, having fun and making no money. I, 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 either one of the two is fine. Yes, yes. But I wasn't having either of those. And uh, I was divorced. My two sons were, were mature adults, busy with their lives. And I thought, this isn't fun. It's not profitable. What, what did I enjoy doing? And I thought, I really enjoyed going to Uskamanagorsk. And, and, and Azerbaijan, Baku and Azerbaijan also. So I sent out emails to about 40 universities in, in Central Asia, a few in uh, Arab countries. And uh, the one that replied, only one out of 40 that replied was the American University of Central Asia. And they're based where? In Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. Okay some back and forth, and, and uh, I asked them to put me in contact with somebody else, and I knew the area, and they put me in contact with a, a fellow who was the former country chief for the U.S. Peace Corps. I also talked with him about the environment, about the university, and uh, I talked with my two sons uh, how they'd feel if I decamped. And off you went. Yeah, a little bit of uh, soul-searching because this was going to be a major step. You can't walk away from, from your consulting practice and then expect that your contacts are going to be waiting for you 12 months or 18 months later when you come back. You, of course, you, of course. You have to keep those relationships uh, warm. And so I, was, I struggled with that, but I thought, okay. And so I made a commitment that I would go to the American University of Central Asia for one to five years. And what did you do for them? Is it also management consulting? No, it was uh, pure teaching. I was teaching strategy management and logistics to uh, their master's students and their bachelor's students. Were you happy there? Good, good, good crowd, good place to work? Yes, the American University of Central Asia was good. In its niche, it would be the best in, in uh, Bishkek. Now, it didn't have a wide niche. It wasn't active in, in uh, the sciences at that time and so on. But what it did, it did very well because it was uh, very closely uh, 
allied with Bard College, which is a top college in the United States. And Bard College helped AUCA, the American University of Central Asia, maintain, set and maintain international standards. However, the downside was that I was dealing largely with Americans and, and bless them all, but uh, I'd gone to Central Asia to be with Central Asians. So after a year, I, I went to Alato International University, also in Bishkek, and it was uh, a Turkish Gulan University, heavily oriented towards uh, the Kyrgyz population. And so I taught there. I did some special courses in the case method for a couple of universities, University of Grodne and, and Kakushta and so on. And so I was there for over four years, went back to Canada to do a five-month, turned out to be a five-month uh, consulting engagement for a credit union in uh, north-central Alberta, and then back to, to Kyrgyzstan in, in July 2021. July 21, that's quite recent. Yes. There's not been a lot of grass growing under these feet. So you, you have joined the, the Uzbekistan gig uh, only recently. Yes. I came here for three days at the end of September uh, on a scouting trip to see what it was like uh, and then went back and, and my wife and I talked about it at length and we decided that we'd come here. So we put whatever we could in several large bags and, and moved to, to Tashkent November 1 and December the 6th, I started at the Tashkent Chemical Technology Institute. Now, you told me when we first spoke that the be best thing that happened to you in Kyrgyzstan was meeting your wife. How did that happen? Did I say that? I think you did. <laughs> okay, well, if I said that, it must be true. <laughs> How did you meet your, your, your bride-to-be? Well, the story is that, that I was out uh, and at a at a restaurant and she was there with uh, some of her friends and I knew one and uh, so we were introduced and I follow up uh, and uh, we started going out and that was almost four years ago. Well, congratulations to you. And she's okay leaving Kyrgyzstan? She's happy to be in Uzbekistan now? Well, she likes Uzbekistan and likes Tashkent. Uh, there's a lot to, to, to really be appreciated here. It's a strain in the sense that she is very family oriented. She's very close with her family and to be separated, um, that, that, that's difficult. The countervailing part of that is that Tashkent to Bishkek really is an hour plane flight. And so she could be door to door in, in under four hours. So if anything comes up, she could be back home as long as there's connecting flights very quickly and she could take a bus and there's far more buses, more frequent buses every 12 hours. Uh, so that's, that's been positive. Uh, her sister's been here to visit, uh, sister-in-law and a niece have been here and we're hoping more people come. So Tashkent is, has all the advantages that Tashkent provides, plus the advantage of being close enough that, that it's possible to maintain a, a, an act of good family relationship. 
So your wife has family back in Bishkek. Her, her parents are, are, there, are there? Yes, her parents are there, sister, brother, aunts and uncles. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult for, especially, you know, in times like Nariz or uh, the end or the beginning of Ramadan where there would be large family gatherings. And so uh, Zoom or, or WhatsApp participation in these is not the same thing. Yeah, I, I hear you. So she's made a sacrifice to be here with me. <laughs> there you go. So you made the switch. You went to Uzbekistan. Are you happy that, that you're, are you happy in your new position? Uh, how could you compare? Or, or, are there some things you miss about Kyrgyzstan? Well, I'm very happy to be here. Absolutely. What I found is that the, uh, there is a progressive ethos here. Uh, certainly in, in the Institute itself, but I, I would say right across uh, much of society, there's a real uh, desire to move forward and there's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of investment. So that's energizing. I, I'm quite happy. This was a good move. Do you see potential for cooperation between uh, uh, the, the Chemical Institute where you work now and, and perhaps Canada or Canadian institutions? Nathan. You have no idea about the potential. We have worked very closely with, uh, with in particular, the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, and they've been... Oh, we love SATE. SATE has been wonderful. Uh, Judy Peterson's been here once, and, and I think you probably know Judy. Judy's on our board. We love Judy, too. Yeah, and, and she's coming back. There's... Uh, We've worked with Judy. Uh, the Institute has invited a delegation. We're, we're hoping, I'm hoping, that there'll be 25 or 30 people from Tashkent go to, say, to go to Calgary, to the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, to see what they're doing in vocational education. And the ministry here and the office of the president has made a they had a good commitment, I'd say, before, but they've now made it a very strong commitment to uh, upgrading their, their vocational education. So our institute, the, the Tashkent Chemical Technology Institute, has its main operations in Tashkent, but we have a total of 11, call them distribution points for colleges or locations in Uzbekistan covering uh, probably close to 80% of the population and maybe 60% of the geographic area. So we have six regional training centers in major industries. Uh, we have two affiliates and two branches plus Tashkent. So what we're working with, with uh, SAIT and Judy Peterson is bringing their expertise in vocational training Nathan, they are so far ahead of what we're doing. Well, SAID is one of the leaders in North America, if not in the world, in vocational training. They've done vocational training in 46 countries. Uh, so we're really excited about working with them. And uh, Judy's given me a lot of, of uh, constructive advice. And uh, so there's an invitation that's now gone out from SAID, from the board of directors to Uzbekistan. It's... Uh, in official channels, and we're hopeful to go there in uh, mid-October. 
The second thing in terms of an institution, and we're open to a lot of cooperation with Canadian institutions, but a uh, second one that, that I'm personally involved in is that we're hoping to bring uh, something called the LEADER Project, which is a student-led initiative that's been around for 30 years, operates in a handful of countries at the uh, Ivy Business School at, at Western University. We're hoping that they will come and, and do an entrepreneurship uh, program for us, probably in the summer of 2022. 2023. 20, it may be uh, the summer of... 2023, but even the summer of 2024 because of, of timing issues. We, we, you know, our, our mission at the CECC is to build bridges between Canada and the countries of Eurasia, and you are doing just that. You, I don't think you remember, but you are fulfilling our mission uh, by very actively building, it sounds like, very constructive and useful bridges between uh, your institute and several Canadian uh, educational institutions, and you seem to be expanding and enthusiastic. And I take my hat off to you, sir, because that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish, what our association has been trying to accomplish for, for, for 20 years now. Well, okay, and, and that's very kind of you. I will at times wear uh, a hat with a Canada flag uh, above the forehead, and in the winter, I typically wear a black beret with the Canada flag over the left uh, eye, you know, because if you're going to be a foreigner, you might as well be branded accurately. <laughs> might as well play the role, fit the role, right? Yes. And now the disadvantage of wearing the flag uh, on, on a cap or on a beret is that, you know, I, I feel obligated to tip generously. Uh, when I'm in a taxi or a restaurant, because I think in some small way I'm, I'm representing the country. So so I of better course. not be cheap in my tipping. So it's costing me money. Of course, of course. You're, you're, you're a representative of the, of the nation at this point. So now tell me about your judo. Has that, uh, I know you're an expert in judo or you, you, you do it, you enjoy it. Has that affected or or impacted the way you you teach or the way that you look at turnarounds or the way you consult in any way that's a really good question that gives me pause judo was was i'm too old uh, to do judo now i'm way past that but i keep exercising and uh, uh, i'm probably one of the the best exercised old guys around but judo was was really important to me uh because that anchored my commitment to fitness that I've kept up for the last 50 years. Uh, and uh, I was fortunate, this was in Ottawa, and I trained under Mass Takahashi. And unfortunately, Mass uh, passed away about uh, almost two years ago. And uh, the Takahashi family was outstanding. Uh, Mass himself, was a Japanese Canadian who was interned during the Second World War. And yes, and he was a, a sixth degree black belt. His wife, June, was a fifth degree black belt. Uh, they had uh, the daughter, Tina, was at one point uh, coach of the Canadian women's judo team. Phil Takahashi was on the Canadian men's Olympic judo team for several years and uh, was competed in the uh, Pan-American Games, etc. And uh, another son, 
competed in Greco-Roman wrestling. And then they would add the third son uh, became an engineer. So it was a really interesting family. And so... And he was your master. Yes. And, and you know, this is 35, 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago. And I've, I stayed in contact, not great contact, but periodic contact. And I even did a LinkedIn post uh, several years ago, maybe six, seven years ago on life lessons that I took from judo. And so judo was, was uh, very important in my life uh, during the 20s. And then I, I did a little bit, non, not competition, but just club training uh, in my early 30s. Uh, so I highly recommend judo, but not just judo. For your listeners, just get involved in something that's important that takes you out of yourself. Okay, whatever it be. Yeah, for me it was judo, but for somebody else, uh, it might be. I, I have one of my my sons has a hobby of these little figurines, like military figurines and war games and all of this, and it it takes him out of his day to day uh, thinking and, and environment and a different world. And in judo, you can't be thinking about the uh, difficult problem at work, uh, a difficult client, a difficult staff member, whatever, or somebody's going to bounce you very hard on your head. You've got to be focused. Actually, you have to have an empty mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that, that the training takes over. And so you just flow with it. And But that doesn't come easily that that's a result of, of doing a lot of time I'm, I'm sure it does i'm sure it does tell me tell me this what is it that made you a leader how is it uh that you became a leader i became a leader by by being willing to do things that other people don't want to do not not things that other people cannot do but they're just not willing to do people are not willing to make some of the sacrifices i went at one point, I don't recommend this, and there's going to be lots of people that object to this, correctly so, but at one point I went 14 years without a holiday. When you're self-employed, you do what you have to do, and you do it. Now, I did take, from time to time, three-day weekends, and I, I tried to get some work-life balance and spend a lot of time with my children and my wife and integrated that into my life. But in terms of just taking off for three weeks or whatever, I didn't take a holiday for 14 years. I have had the sad experience of terminating people, in some cases because they were unsuited or had done bad things. But in many cases, I had to terminate people who, who through no, no fault of their own, were working in an organization that, could not sustain its then current employment levels, a variety of reasons. And existing management in many cases couldn't bring themselves to deal with that sad reality. So when I would step in to do things that other people did not want to do. That's, that's what a leader does. Yeah, I, I hear you. And what about the future, Peter? What does the future hold for Peter McCann? Well, I came here in... To Central Asia in August, 
almost exactly six years ago today. It was, it was six years ago, two days ago, in fact. And I said at that time I'd come for one to five years. That was six years ago. And today I'd say I'm here for one to six years. When I started in December, I told the rector of, of the, the Tashkent Chemical Technologies Institute that uh, I'd be, I'd, I'd stay as long as he wanted up to one to six years. And we're almost another year gone, and I'm still saying one to six years. Well, that's a pretty broad. It's a retreating, it's a retreating horizon. Isn't yes, it? indeed. I was going to say that's a pretty broad mandate. Uh, uh, I would be, if I was your employer, I'd be quite happy uh, to, to hear that because one to six years uh, should be enough time to get the job done. You'd think. Uh, for for turnarounds, typically you need three years, as, as a good rule of thumb. Well, I, uh, I bet we could talk for hours, but our time is up, so I will say goodbye, and thank you so much for sharing your pearls of wisdom with us today. It's been a pleasure uh, to speak uh, with you, Peter. We've been joined today by Peter McCann, uh, a turnaround management consultant, if I can call you that, uh, who now serves as advisor to the rector of the Tashkent Chemical Technologies Institute. Thank you so much for being with us today, Peter. Nathan, it's been the best and most enjoyable interview I've done all day. That's saying a lot, I'm sure. Bye-bye now, Peter. Take care. You've been listening to Icebreakers, a podcast produced by CECC, the Canada-Eurasia Chamber of Commerce, supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the nations of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and give us a review on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to address questions to guests. To find out more about the series or to make a donation, please check out our website at www.cecpodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in.